0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Rob Goddard, the CEO of Evolution CBS. They're a specialist firm that helps entrepreneurs sell their business. Rob, why don't we have a couple of minutes from you explaining a little bit about what you do, who you do it for, and then we'll get into the meat and gristle of the discussion.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for the welcome. Marcus, we do three things. We buy, sell, and grow businesses. but Largely, Evolution is known for providing exits or partial exits for business owners. We can sell businesses, so, we can sell businesses in any industry sector. Our sweet spot is 5 to £20 million pounds turnover, although we do work outside of those two parameters. We're also an international firm. We're not just in the UK. We sell businesses in the Middle East as well. And it is interesting that the, there are commonalities between business owners in the UK and business owners in the UAE. About 80% overlap quite neatly. So our role is to help business owners prepare and then execute a business sale. Our role is to maximize value, not only in terms of headline price, but also deal structure, because the more quickly you can get the money, the cash up front, the better it is for the seller. So that's what we do. We're primarily our focus is on business exits, allowing a business owner to finish one chapter in their life and start a new one. So, Rob, how many businesses have you sold so far? I've been doing this 17 years, 346 successful transactions across pretty much all sectors you and I could think of.
0: So I'm sector agnostic as well. I've worked across 450 different segments of the market. And one thing I've noticed is there are commonalities. Uh, In terms of their pain, what I'd like to start with is what are the common pains that people go through when they're trying to sell their business if they don't have professional guidance and they're not properly structured?
1: That's a really good question. There's a couple that come right at the top of the tree. One is that most business owners have never sold their own business before. They're very used to selling their own products and services, but they haven't sold their own business. And that puts them at a big disadvantage because Conversely, most acquirers have bought before, and some have bought repeatedly. So you've got this unlevel playing field. It's like David and Goliath. And so our role at Evolution, when we're selling a business, is to even up the odds. Because whether you're in the UK, or the UAE, or the US, whatever country, it's usually it starts off being a buyer's market. There are more companies for sale than there are buyers. And the only way you can even up the odds is having someone on your side that's experienced, has been up that mountain many, many times, and that can steer you through the right path. So there is a a natural disadvantage for sellers. Some business owners try and sell their business themselves. And we have a trail of them come to our quarterly masterclasses for business owners. They've tried to sell it themselves and have failed dismally. And it usually revolves around price. They're not getting the offers that they anticipated their business is worth, and of course that leads on to, well, how did you value your own business in the first place? And there are some weird and wonderful ways that business owners value their business. I had one yesterday. I was in Dubai for the last few days. A business that their aspirational price, their magic number, was fifty million dollars, and their profit last year was one point five million dollars. So I said, How on earth? (laughs) <laughs> how on earth did you get the 50 million when your are only only making one half million dollar profit mm-hmm. and they said oh we looked around at other deals and people were paying on turnover i said no one pays on turnover at all they're paying on profit because as an investor i want to know how many years will it be before i start to break even on my investment so turnover is definitely vanity profit is sanity so i think this whole area of Business owners having an aspirational price, what we do at Evolution is we have an honest conversation about what their business is probably worth and what it's not worth. And the one thing that we, one of the key things that we recommend is they do not speak with just one company. This is the other common pain area for business owners. They think that the first company that comes along that's interested in buying them is going to be their eventual suitor. And uh, this is often not the case particularly if it's a competitor who's probably on a fishing trip. We say that one buyer is no buyer. You cannot find out what it's worth on the open market without going to market. Are they often looking to be rescued at that point? No, most are profitable. I I would say the majority of companies I've come across month to month, year to year, have stagnated in terms of top line and bottom line. And of course, that probably gives you an indication as to why they're selling, because they've given up trying to grow it. Probably they need the input of your good self-markers. <laughs> rather than continue the effort, heartache, and energy of growing it, they'd rather cash out and do something else. So usually stagnated, we do get distressed businesses, although they often are a bit more realistic on price because the alternative doesn't look very good to them, which is insolvency. But most are stagnated and have run out of ideas to grow it. or well, they've got the ideas, but not the working capital because they've spent that on their five-bedroom house and they're Range Rovers, and they're boats in the marina. So they've got a lifestyle business that they haven't reinvested for growth necessarily.
0: So when you're meeting a potential vendor for the first time, what sort of checklist are you going through in terms of your questions?
1: The first thing I ask them is, what's a good outcome for you? What would you like to take away from a meeting? Because I want to pre-qualify them out. If they're unrealistic on price... Or actually, their motivation is pretty weak about selling, that maybe they're selling for a negative reason. From that first few minutes, whilst we're drinking coffee together, I want to see if they're serious contenders for selling because I don't want them to waste their money and our time by having an aborted exercise. So that's the first thing. They tell me a little bit about their business because I want to know how it's structured. And what I'm looking for especially is, is the business reliant on them as owners? Are they the engine within the car? Mm -hmm. If they are, that business is pretty hard to sell because the one thing that they're not selling with the business is themselves usually. And so it's like selling a car without an engine and that's scrap metal. I want to see how reliant the business is on them. And I have to say, as a fellow business owner myself, there is a temptation to control all the key things and also then go on to delude yourself that the business runs itself when it clearly doesn't. Those are the key things. And then we move on to price. I want to know what their aspirational price is. I usually wrap it up in an expression, which is, what is your magic number? And they mishear the question. They think I'm trying to get them to value their business, and I'm not. That would be a very different number, probably. I want to know... What is the capital sum as a business owner you're looking to create in your life so you can finish one chapter and start a new one? What is that number? And usually for SMEs, it's one of four answers. Once we get to it, it's 1 million, 3 million, 5 million, or 10 million. And uh, if if it's a typical S of SME and there's three shareholders, guess what? They'll want 3 million. If there's two shareholders, it'll be 2 million. (laughs) It's really scientific, Marcus.
0: (laughs) Well, I always maintain that we're basically chimps with egos and speech, and we're very... <laughs> it doesn't generally go down well, but um, it's the truth. We're, we're a predictable species. We're creatures of habit and programming, and yes. we're creatures of emotion. And that then brings me to the next question, which is how often is the valuation based on emotion rather than reason?
1: Nearly always. If I said 99 99- 90 to 95%, it would be pretty accurate. It's what they need the business to be worth because they may want to pay off debts. They may have another business initiative, business idea in mind. Rarely, very rarely does it bear any relation to the profit and loss and the balance sheet. And as was the case I just mentioned with the people that wanted $50 million, they looked on Google to see business transactions and i have to say these were much larger companies that we were looking at much larger than them and drew conclusions that they were pretty much in the same space
0: i always maintained that your four biggest competitors are fear apathy ignorance and ego and ego <laughs> is the biggest um, so Agreed. yeah i get that okay so tell me this then is there a difference between a trading business a services business yeah you know, manufacturing training business like mine or something that's packed full of uh, intellectual property, like a software company, in terms of how the valuation is uh, measured? Or is it just down to profit?
1: No, that's, uh, again, a really insightful question. Manufacturing, you tend to have assets, tangible assets. So in one aspect, that is easier to sell, in theory, because if it all goes wrong, the acquisition, there's usually capital equipment, stock that can be sold off, etc. On the other side, with service-based businesses, the problem with service-based business, and mine is a service-based business like yours, the asset really are the people and the know-how and the connections. And uh, I can think of certain industries like marketing and PR, advertising. Those businesses are people-related. And often you find that the partners or the shareholders are the key fee earners. Well, you're not selling them in the business and that that those fees are going to walk out the door
0: unless those sorts of businesses have created the next layer of operators are pretty much unsaleable
1: yeah so we would rather work with those companies and help them build a succession plan that's part of our growth strategy to right. help business owners believe uh, to develop a second tier leadership team not managers because i'm talking about leadership not management and to do less work in their business, I say, just go part-time. Prove to any potential new owner of your business that the business doesn't need you full-time. It doesn't need you 90 hours a week. You know, Stop doing that amount of work and because it will affect the value of the business, ultimately, when you come to sell. The other area you mentioned was intellectual property, and that is businesses based on IP are really tricky to value. And our guidance is, look, you've got to go to market because what your business might be worth will vary wildly between one potential buyer and another. You can get people, we don't do this, but you can get people that will value the IP in theory. But we say you've got to get in front of people that would make use of that IP to get a valuation. They're really tricky. You can get some very, very high multiples on intellectual property plays, but it can go the other way as well, which is it's worth almost nothing. Often people that have an IP-related business think it's worth a gazillion pounds tomorrow. (laughs) Um, I say, well, have you invented the next Facebook (laughs) or LinkedIn? No, I haven't, but I've got this really good widget. (laughs) I often find people
0: um, who have that approach are a bit like a new parent who insists on showing photos of their ugly children.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um usually it's between service, so service-based and manufacturing, which is most businesses we meet. There's pros and cons to both. We can sell businesses that are manufacturers, we can sell businesses at service-based. What we're looking for is not so much the industry or the type of subsector that they operate in. It's the business itself. Has it got a management team that runs it day to day without the owner's involvement too much? Has it What are its differentiators? Why do people buy their service, products and services, rather than a competitor down the road? That's what we want to find out, because that will give us a really good steer if we're instructed to go to market and sell their business as to why prospective acquirers and investors would take an interest in this company. What makes them different? If they have
0: a strong leadership team to succeed them, they have good systems and processes, They are not integral to the day-to-day running of the business. What else are the other factors that determine whether you get a high or a low valuation? Things like sales, recruitment,
1: uh, other aspects. There's two things immediately. One is just what you have said there, Marcus. Often the business developer of the business and and chief salesperson and chief bottle washer and uh, washer-upper is one of the owners. And why are you getting new sales? Why haven't you brought through and developed talent from within and or bolted in externally? Why is it you? And, and quite often, of course, it's ego. They love being a legend in their own lunchtime, and they couldn't possibly let go of one of the lifebloods into the business, which is new business acquisition and uh, repeat business. So again, we, we try to educate business owners that really they should be upskilling people within their organization or where there's a gap recruiting the right people. And uh, invariably, the the response is, oh, we've tried that and it didn't work. I said, well, you clearly are not good at recruiting. (laughs) (laughs) Leave it alone. Get a professional (coughs) to help you recruit. Someone like Marcus, maybe. But don't just make the decision yourself. Have someone that knows what they're doing and, and create a panel. Because it hasn't happened once. They think it's, they're not going to do it again. And I say, no, you've just executed. It's the right strategy. You've just executed it poorly.
0: In my experience, they've often tried multiple times. Yeah. What they've <laughs> failed to do is learn from their mistakes. <laughs> because the majority of people when they're recruiting will recruit for skills, experience, and historical results, all of which tell me that Rob might have been good once, perhaps. Yes. But it doesn't tell me whether you were lucky whether you were being carried, whether the timing was just fortuitous. Um, So, for example, cybersecurity, if you're not growing at least 100% per annum at the moment in that marketplace, you are shite. And that's the technical term. Um, Because, frankly, if you can't make money in this economy where every single day there is Facebook losing 50 million, being hacked for 50 million access passwords, or Barclays, or whoever, um, then you must be terrible at selling. So that that doesn't really tell me a hell heap. What does tell me, uh, what predicts are things like habit. What are the habitual behaviors that you as an individual and you as a company instill within your salespeople? What do people do systematically? What are their cognitive abilities that they recruit for? So learning on the hoof, adapting. When they talk about survival of the fittest, they're not talking about survival of the brawniest, or we'd still all be brontosauruses. (laughs) Um, The problem is that what they don't do is, or what they do do is, they tend to recruit in their own image only weaker, and they They do do what was done to them. So they end up hiring in in sales, certainly. Um, They tend to promote their top salesperson, and they lose a good salesperson and gain an atrocious manager. So they get a double whammy. And the other piece is beliefs, values, and attitudes, and these are the things that really are good predictors of success in almost any position, whether it's sales, management, leadership, operations, the skills can be learned. And the basic belief is that anyone applying for the job will have those skills, which you can relatively easily test for. But those habits, those are the killers. What is it that you advise your clients to do in the growth phase around putting systems in place to ensure that by the time they get to the actual sale and when they're getting to the auction stage, that stuff has been taken care of.
1: In the back of my mind, we know the sorts of questions that are going to come up further in the future from the buy-side lawyers. It's called due diligence. So it's making sure the buyer, what they think they're buying, is what they're buying. <laughs> and so we know that years in advance what, what's going to be asked. So the sort of things that we work with our client on are contracts. Make sure that you have contracts for clients, suppliers. And would you believe, Marcus, even in the 21st century in the UK, some employers in the UK still do not have employment contracts. It's outrageous. And it's not as if they haven't had 30, 40 years notice on this. They just haven't got round to it. They've been lazy. And we say to them, look, we bring them up short and say, you've got to have it. It's unsaleable. Forget about whether it's worth X or Y or Z. It's unsaleable. So we want to make sure that everything is, is contractual. It's a bit difficult with clients because if they've got a few major clients and it's been on a handshake for like 30 years, it's tricky for them then to go to their big client and say, well, we'd like to put it all on paper. So the first thing you should do is all new clients, it should be on a proper contract. And if you don't know how to write a proper contract, get a lawyer that can do that for you.
0: What do you mean? If you don't know how to write a proper contract, surely the Uh, (laughs) (laughs) only
1: They don't. They often miss things out. And it's not what's in a contract. It's what's not in a contract that can affect viability. Yeah, get a lawyer to draft it. They've got templates, for goodness sake, on this. And then populate it with what you believe is the commercial contract. And then have a chat with your lawyer. So all new clients should have a proper commercial contract. All suppliers should have a contract between you and your supplier. And then every employee, there's no excuse for that. That's just outrageous. And so you'd be, well, you probably wouldn't be amazed, but a lot of business owners in this country haven't got proper formal legal, commercial and legal relationships. It's a handshake. They've known Barney for X years. All of this, well, i so say, you've got to tidy this up. There's no point going to market. You're going to waste your money with us because it's all going to come out in due diligence. So let's, let's chip away. Let's get it done. Because we've got the common questions that come up in due diligence. So the the other end...
0: Sorry to cut across here. Is you. Is this a a byproduct of the nature of people who set up businesses? Because in my experience, we we do a a lot of work with our clients around behavioral and psychometric profiling. More often than not, the owner of the business is uh, typically a dominant personality uh, who is fast-paced, big picture, short on detail um they tend to be because they're fast-paced they're moving from one thing to the other they're a bit like the dog in up squirrel and off they go and so there's a lot of strings left untied is that a byproduct of who they are and their personality type and the culture that they built around them (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) okay long question short answer (laughs) typically because most people aren't Uh, Owner managers, they're employees. The vast majority of people are employed by someone else in this country. It's damn hard to set up a business, particularly from scratch. You've got to have certain qualities. And I empathize with these. So, self confident, usually alpha male or alpha female, very sure of their own abilities. And you've got to, if you want to set up a business from scratch, you've got no track record, you've got to believe in yourself. They are usually a legend in their own lunchtime. As the business grows, they've built this microcosm around them where they make all the, all the judgment calls to one degree or another. So I think it is a byproduct of being an owner-manager. And, and the hardest ones are the ones that have got successful business. How, on earth, how dare I, as Rob suggest that may not be doing it right? <laughs> they've got the Aston Martin DB11 sitting outside. They've got a seven-bedroom house and a place in Portugal for holidays, and then you've got this guy called Rob Goddard, or one of his team comes along and says, well, you've built a, an asset for income, but not necessarily for capital because you've got to, if you want to sell the business, it's got to have a, a capital asset value. It, so it, 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 it is indebted. I, I, I love those, those qualities I've just listed, Marcus, They're all the ones that I recognize in me. That's why I love working with them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it, again, I, I recognize the qualities as well. One of the things that we have to do in our line of work is we need to contract up front that we're going to tell them the unvarnished truth and they can't throw us out for it. They may not like it, uh, but if they've invited us in, it's for a good reason, which is they're serious as a heart attack about selling this business or growing the business. And if they want our help, then they need to take the feedback on the chin. They can disagree with it, but once we've engaged, our job is to tell them the truth and nothing but the truth even though it may harm our relationship and uh, they may not like
1: it i've lost some business it's gone elsewhere because i have you can't haven't lose what you, what you never had. had
0: you can't lose what you never had
1: <laughs> good correction the other area that we give the unvarnished truth i like that if i if i can use that if i may of course i like that is their financials we sell evolution sells three out of every four businesses we take on which is the reverse of the industry. It's the other way around. One in four is pretty typical in the UK as a success rate. Or so not you sell three rate. in four? Three out of every four we sell first time. That's quite a is, track record. It's, yeah, and it's, it's quite the envy of the sector of our mergers and acquisitions. That's partly because I've got a fantastic team that I've built around me, and I don't work in the business now. I do wonderful things like this podcast this morning. And I go off to Dubai and build another business. It's the team that are great at delivering, but also we have that unvarnished truth. We give a very honest assessment of where their business is today, which includes evaluation, but also list also for them the things they're going to need to work on now and iron out the wrinkles. And the one key thing, apart from what I've just mentioned a moment ago, the one thing that we do tackle with them is financials. The one in four that we don't sell first time round. Over half of the occasions we haven't been able to sell a business is for one reason and one reason only. There is no financial robustness to the figures. And yet we have accountants that are all supposed to be working under UK Gap. Well, it's FRS now, of course. But you would be amazed at the breadth of quality of accounts that's produced or not. I have seen, we've had clients that have shown me accounts that are uh, posted at company's house that show a profitable, solvent business. And upon further scrutiny, it's not loss making, insolvent, trading illegally, actually, in some situations, because they're paying them dividends, themselves dividends as the shareholders every month, even though it's insolvent. So this can be either, well, for a variety of reasons that the numbers don't stack up. But we need to get to the bottom of it. We want to make sure that, under scrutiny, again, in due diligence, financial due diligence, that it's robust, that the numbers will stand up, that they make sense, that they haven't been applying so weird and wonderful principles to how the numbers are being displayed. The other part of it is the with the financials, is if we're selling a business this year, if the numbers go start to go south because they've lost a key client or two or they've lost their salesman or their sales director, that will affect offers. For that business and in fact we've got one at the moment where they were forecasting a net profit of three million pounds the top offer was just over 24 million wow. they're actually achieved not three million net profit but just under one and a half million net profit mm-hmm. so guess what's going to happen to that indicative offer of 24 million <laughs> it's okay. going to half. <laughs> at seven <laughs> but our client's still at 24 point something million in their head In the head, because they've made, it goes back to the point you made a little earlier, Marcus, it's an emotional attachment to the figure. So that is the most common reason, from our experience, transaction doesn't occur, is that the forecasted figure for the year that we're in isn't achieved by their sales team.
0: So what does a good balance sheet look like? What what are the qualities of a good balance sheet?
1: We don't like the word goodwill, (laughs) if it appears which is really an accountancy term, and it's like a will-o'-the-wisp expression. It means nothing in the real world, goodwill. What does that mean? What we're looking for is tangible assets like property, like a debtor book, a really healthy debtor book where they're not having to spend a lot of time chasing up slow payers. Good cash flow. Yes, you can have something if it's relevant for intellectual property, but who's made, who, who's created that? pound shillings and pence number for intellectual property. What's the basis of that? The bigger the balance sheet, the better. Generally, uh, the net asset value, or sometimes it's called shareholders funds. We don't sell on balance sheet. We, it's more to do with profit and future potential of the P&L when one company buys another. But the balance sheet does help to mitigate some risk because if it all goes belly up post acquisition, the new owner has got something to has got assets to sell off. Worst case scenario. So the higher the balance sheet value, net asset value, the more likelihood you're going to get a higher price. But most SMEs don't have a big, strong balance sheet. The S of SME don't profit.
0: As we look towards the exit runway, if you like, how much of a runway does the typical S of SME? need to give themselves in order to put in place the right strategy, structure, system, skills, and staff?
1: So, yeah, that's an interesting one. There is a difference between selling the business the day that you've sold the business to someone else compared to when you're free of it because the two usually are quite different. The large majority of business owners have to stay on for a, a, a reasonable period. And Reasonable doesn't mean three, three hours or three days. <laughs> So this is their two or three or five-year earnout. out um, There might be an earnout involved, not necessarily. It might just be that they have to stay on for 12 months, 18 months on a retainer or some sort of payment basis to ensure a healthy and a smooth turnover, uh, um, handover. That's particularly prevalent where one of the shareholders is basically sales director. Right. And they've got all the key relationships in their black book. Well, that that, sell, that that shareholder stroke sales director staying on. No chance of them moving on, usually. So there, there is a big difference. Usually, it's one to two years post-acquisition. The old shareholders are required to stay on, usually on a reducing basis. It's not full-time. It's just to give some added comfort to the new owner that uh, the goodwill, in inverted commas, isn't going to walk out stage left with the, the shareholders selling up. You are right. You mentioned earnout, So sometimes not all the sale price is paid on day one. It's spread over a period of time. Five years is pretty long. That's unusual. And earnout, if it's relevant, if it's applicable, would be normally over two to three years. So to answer your question, anyone that's looking at the start of the runway, I would suggest you've got to look two years before you want to go to market to sell, because there may be some tax issues or some things that you need to tidy up within the business. You do need to take tax advice because you may not qualify for entrepreneur's relief at 10%. Ah. Everyone assumes that they will, but it um, depends what you've done in the past. It depends on your personal circumstances. So get that checked out. And then it takes a year to sell a business. And then you may be staying on for a year, 18 months, quite likely. So you're talking about a four, five-year window. It's, it's a long burn. It isn't, an, it isn't six months and away you go into the sunset with a bag full of cash.
0: So one of the things I've heard happened a few times when I was talking to entrepreneurs is that they made the sale, they worked the earnout, but then the new owner made sure that they jiggled the numbers so that they didn't make a profit. And so the amount of money that the vendor got was substantially less. How do they protect themselves against that?
1: <laughs> yeah, very pertinent point. Two-thirds, in Evoluta, through our process, two-thirds of the deals that we've transacted have no earn-out at, at all. It's cash on completion. There right. might be a, ret- a small 5% retained for 6 to 12 months because something might come out of the woodwork just after acquisition, like a VAT problem, for example, or a member of staff is suing the business yeah. for unfair dismissal or something like that. But most of our transactions are clean. And the way that we achieve that, I'm surprised – many of our competitors don't follow suit, but probably will after this podcast, (laughs) is that one of the things that we do is that we get all buyers, interested parties, to make two offers on the same sheet of paper. That always, any acquirer is going to make an offer based on quite a heavily structured deal, i.e. the seller's not going to get all the money up front. That's a given. That's just a negotiating stance. What we do is knowing that is say to an interested party, look, if you're going to make an offer, please can you have an offer A and an offer B? An offer B is cash on completion. We would like to know what the cash on completion amount is. Our client's prepared to stay on for a short period, not reasonable, but short for a handover. And it's amazing. when It's like an alternative close in sales. We get two offers on most from one buyer and most of the time, our clients go for the cleaner deal, i.e. The, sh- the smaller headline price, but they can walk away pretty cleanly to avoid the sort of situation that you just mentioned. Because once you've sold your business, you can't control that P&L. you yeah. put all sorts of costs through Absolutely. to make sure the earnout isn't triggered.
0: I'm right. reminded of an episode of The Sopranos where they sell the business to them and then they uh, drive Uh, all of their um, purchases through it and then.
1: So the majority of our transactions are clean deals, i.e. no earnouts at all. And we sell. The last eight years, we've been doing this average multiple. If people are into multiples of profit, most people have heard of them, have some appreciation, is 8.1 multiple of adjusted profit before tax. 8.1. 8.1. In layman's terms, which I understand, that's eight years' profit on one day (laughs) if there's no earn-out. How would you like eight years' profit on a single day, less 10% entrepreneur's relief? You can go off and do something else in life.
0: Cool. I shall be getting some contracts out this week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe my wife is right. (laughs) I hasten to add, we don't sell. We'd never give a price to the market. When we speak with buyers, we invite offers. We never give a price, and that is fun and games. As you, you'll appreciate, Marcus, obviously anyone that's looking to buy wants to establish price quite early on.
0: How important is consistency in terms of profitability to that valuation? Because uh, you know, I might have a bumper year this year, uh, but the previous five have been pretty awful, and next year is going to be a tank as well. So, how does that affect the valuation?
1: In that sort of situation, buyers would look at the, the worst f- five years <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then make their offer based on that. I call it sawtooth profit profile, where it's, it looks scary, the peaks and the troughs. And they're particularly, buyers are particularly suspicious that there's been an upturn in the bottom line in the year before sale, because that <laughs> looks like it's been manufactured. It probably is. So consistency of profit is essential accountants and corporate finance people call it sustainable earnings but what is the likely sustainable earnings after i've bought this business forget about the improvements i've got to make because that's going to cost me a shed load of money as the new owner because i've got to reinvest in the business things that the old owner never bothered to do couldn't get round to so sustainable earnings is key and there's a, a huge amount of debate and discussion and negotiation regarding what the sustainable earnings may or may not be huge. It takes months. And it's a a negotiation between the two parties. There isn't a finite answer. It's what both parties can live with. And
0: tell me this then, if you look at the average business, I mean, we talked about this a couple of years ago and it's stuck in my mind, but it's better coming out of your mouth than mine because otherwise it sounds partisan. And if a business has a strong sales methodology compared with one that's basically made up of lots of people doing their own thing. How does that affect the valuation?
1: Again, that's huge because if I'm an investor or looking at a business, I don't want a lot of heartache and money developing the business. And if it's got a fractured sales function, particularly if the exiting shareholder or shareholders are involved with sales and they're going and they want to go on day one, that gives me a real issue. So, I might still want the business. I'll just halve my offer that I was going to make. Easy. I'll get it cheaply. And I'll it, use it. literally doubles the value. Oh, I'm just giving a, 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 a common outcome. It could be more. But it, it's whatever the percentage is of a, of a reduction in offer, it's significant. It's not 1% or 2%. Because the lifeblood of the business is sales and business development. Business owners are looking to sell often make the misjudgment, ill conceived judgment, that the new owner will come in like a white knight with fantastic systems and processes, a, a, a sales team that's eager and talented, and so they can just voice that issue over to the new owner. No, you've got to get your act sorted now so that you make the business more attractive and more saleable to interested parties. Don't expect the potential new owner to do it, unless you want to halve the value of your business overnight. Get the work done now, rather than take a hit on price later.
0: I mean, one of the things that I see is that often the technician sets the business up. So they're the engineer, software developer, whatever. And they view sales with a degree of skepticism. And as a result, they underinvest in it. And they, uh, justifiably, in many cases, Um, see salespeople as being unreliable, untrustworthy, not very good. Um, Mm. They have this turnover. So there's a revolving door in sales. They struggle to hire them when they do find a good one. And then they struggle to get the best out of them. And um, so they leave. And so they feel very jaded. And so that's kind of how the business has grown. The business has grown largely because of the owner's relationships, like you pointed to earlier what they've never really done is put a good system in place. They don't have a sales strategy. They don't have a growth strategy. They don't have a, um, territory management and planning. They don't have account planning. And as a result, what they're doing is they're leaving a lot of money on the table. Now, as a buyer of a business, that brings with it some interesting possibilities. First of all, you can halve the offer. And if they've got a decent book of accounts, then and you understand how to grow and uh, grow and sell, then you can make some pretty good windfall profits over the next couple of years. So uh, I'm curious, does that then uh, color whether or not um, business has a lot of bidders when it comes to getting all these potential buyers around the
1: table? Yes, it does. It can affect the amount of interest. We get an average of eight buyers around the table with every client that we're selling. Often it's double-digit, but the, the average, statistical average, is eight. We're good at this. And, and we know. And also, and it's the raw we, because I don't know much of the work these days. It's the team that does. We know what we're looking for, and, and we have those honest, unvarnished conversations. But I, I learned something from you, actually, Marcus, that, uh, years ago, I, about asking questions. So when I first meet with a prospective client that wants to sell, one of the two killer questions Oh, there's a couple of killer questions I ask. I ask them, how do you proactively gain new business? 90% of the time, it's only one answer. Oh, um, we've got a great reputation, and the, a great reputation is repeat business. Right, so you don't do anything then. <laughs> As I use the word proactive, you wait for the phone to ring, do you? They often laugh, and they say, well, yeah. I say, well, that's not proactive, because you're reliant on people ringing you. So that's the first one. How, how do you proactively look for it? The other one I asked that was a really interesting conversation is, could you let me see your formal growth plan? <laughs> 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 um, they often look quizzically at me and then they smile. I say, no, I'm being serious. Well, you know, it's really difficult to forecast, Rob. You know, our sector, you know, our business is different. Our sector is different. I said, no, you're not. I said, all businesses need to have a plan for growth and I'd like to see it. Well, it's more in my head. Well, I said, that's <laughs> no good if we're going to market to sell it, is it? Because we're not going to chop your head off. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, in fairness, that's probably the best outcome, isn't it? <laughs> so I said, let's work with you over the next few months. Let's get a formal growth plan. And when I say growth plan, I don't mean an Excel spreadsheet with loads of spurious numbers. I'm talking about a growth story that then has numbers coming off the back of it. But I want to know, if you weren't selling the business, forget about selling it, but if you're going to grow it in the next three years, how on earth are you going to do that? Talk to me. Those two questions open up all sorts of discussion with prospective buyers. And, and, and the reality is, almost no one has a formal growth plan. They Entrepreneurs tend to be instinctive, seat of the pants, gut feel. And that's how they've got the success so far. That doesn't mean to say that they can grow it any further, nor indeed doesn't mean to say that their business is saleable. Well,
0: this then brings, we're we're coming to the end of the hour, but this brings me to another area that's very close to my heart, having just written the book on the subject. I'm curious how a strong partner channel is affecting valuation, because uh, the World Trade Organization just released stats earlier this year, saying that 75% of all global trade to do with product is sold through partners, yeah. and any business that's looking at growth or exit nowadays, I think has to have a partner strategy. Are you starting to see that as becoming more mainstream, or is it still something that's yeah you know, at the ordinary?
1: Yeah, I think it's. I'm not sure it's mainstream. I, I can answer it in two ways. One as for my business evolution. Over 80% of our revenue last year came through third party introductions, not through direct marketing. It was relationships with accountants, lawyers, private bankers, IFAs, business consultants. We love getting referrals from accountants, their clients that are looking to sell, because usually the accountant has had that naked truth conversation, the unvarnished truth. And of course, most accountants would look at a, a, a modest, prudent, cautious price before. That's been passed on to us. So we love leads from accountants. Yeah, most of our business is through third parties. Um, with our clients, we it does vary. It's a mixed bag. Some of them have very good partner channels in one shape or description, um, particularly obviously if it's a distribution model. But um, in terms of generating new business, it is quite mixed. Most of them, even if they've got some recognized partner channels, certainly don't maximize them. In terms of I'll give you an example they might be getting referrals from partner through their partner channel for a widget, but they they actually have a widget two and widget three and widget four, but they don't communicate with their partner channel to say that we've got other products on offer it's a lack of communication quite often, so part of the effort and energy is making sure partners are properly informed about what your capabilities are.
0: And uh, I'd take that one step further as well, Mm. which is what the potential is downstream for them. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, says to his audience that for every dollar we sell at Salesforce, there's $4.14 downstream for you. And um, exactly. If organizations aren't clear about this and they're not looking at um, how they can partner up Um, where the value chain uh, begins and ends. Uh, If they don't really understand the complexity of the markets that they're operating in, then chances are they're going to be leaving a huge amount of money on the table. And that then brings me to my final question. What does a vendor need to leave left undone so that the buyer can add value and realize their return other than just simply uh you know trading as usual Mm, it's a good
1: question again we say that to sellers you need to leave some oxygen in the game you need to leave the growth as you just mentioned there marcus because businesses that have maxed out are largely unsaleable because where's the growth unless you're going to fork out a lot of money as a new owner in reinvestment that hasn't been made historically key areas would be developing new products It's good when you're looking to sell a business to identify those things that you could do. So, new products and services, new geography, new territories that you could go into if only you're part of a bigger organization with the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe how to grow the top line, particularly over the next few years with a proper sales and marketing strategy that's been lacking. If with all of those things, you don't need to do it all fully you just need to embark proof of concept in those areas that you're, you've are you embarked on that journey but you don't have to complete any of those when you're sitting in front of a prospective buyer for your business you just got to show that it's or demonstrate proof of concept that you can open up in another country you can you've just engaged a new sales director six six months ago and the numbers are looking in the management accounts which you should have Um, You can see the upturn because you've hired the right person. So all of those things, but don't fully, don't leave it too late because there's only two exit strategies in life. One is you sell a business, take the money off the table and do something else. The other exit strategy is death. And business owners, sadly, can leave it too late. They either sell when the numbers are going south or actually they don't get around to it because they have ill health, divorce or death. So those are the, the key areas they need to leave some options in the game. It's new territories, new products and services. If only they had an investment partner, in inverted commas, alongside that could maximize potential value. Most business owners never think about this. They haven't got a growth plan for their own business. <laughs> so, but that's the fun bit for us because we want to sit down and say, what does the business look like in three to five years? If money was no object, what would you do? Not that you're going to have to do all of this, but you need to embark on those journeys.
0: I can't leave on such a miserable note as death, so I'll ask one. <coughs> um, so how soon before they sell should they really be bringing guys like you in?
1: I would say, we don't, yeah, we don't mind an early conversation. And the most common way it starts that conversation is on our website, evolutioncbs.co.uk. We have a big blue button at the top of the landing page, free valuation, and for the exchange of 40 minutes of their time, we'll produce a 29-page valuation report that values their business. That's usually the most common way, apart from obviously a a referral from a partner, that people open up a conversation. But we don't mind whether it's 5, 10, 20 years down the line, because the principles and the truths that we're sharing remain True, and, and we, we would like them to engage early with us rather than too late.
0: Excellent. Rob, thank you so much. This has been very insightful. I've learned a lot, and I hope the listeners also learn a lot. Could you just give people your contact details again?
1: Yeah, so the website is evolutioncbs.co.uk, and our phone number is 0118 959 8224. Or if you Google Rob Godard Evolution, I'll come up on the first page of Google. What sort of events do you run for potential vendors and buyers? We run a variety of events, but the, the big one, the big four are the, the big quarterly events. We've just had one last week at BAFTA. Before that, the Winston Churchill war rooms. We tend to have sort of events that are quite interesting. The next one is Bulgan Cars in Worcestershire. Gonna hold our masterclass mm-hmm. there. It's a six-hour event, it's free of charge. They'll have a range of experts, including us on the platform, to be able to share some information, food for thought, to get business owners starting to think about their company and their exit. So uh, again, on our, on our website, we've got a list of forthcoming events uh, free of charge. We don't charge for any of them. So when's your exit planned? 2020. I have my magic number as well. But I've already started because uh, 2020, as my other half keeps reminding me, ain't far away, that <laughs> uh, I, I don't run the UK business. And uh, I'm in the Middle East every month, set up and run a similar business, but out, out there. So I've already made that transition from not being at the center. I'm on the business, not in it anymore. And I love it. It's freedom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, unemployable and fireproof. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I'll live longer. <laughs> so on that I'm note, not that.
0: Rob, thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. See you next time. Bye-bye.